You're watching the best barbecue show, and I am here in Worcester, Ohio, at the headquarters of Certified Angus Beef, an international brand based out of a small town. Uh, Jeff Bedner is the director of business development. He has traveled the world uh, working on Certified Angus Beef. He started in a butcher shop in Chicago. Um, as a kid at 15 years old, became, uh, a rancher, started working with cattle, uh, is actually was mentored by the founder of certified Angus beef, Mick Colvin, uh, really, a, a huge history to go over. How, how's your day going, Jeff? Well, it's been a good day and most <laughs> days here are. I can tell. I mean, everywhere I go, this is my first time at the office, but I've worked with the staff at convention and emails and everything i mean it's a it's an incredible business an incredible team that you have here yeah you know everywhere i've been i'd say that you know it's with the organization was considered one of the best and yet i've never worked with this level of talented people number of people that are still very grounded and fun individuals to work with every day and uh you've been with the business for or you've been with cab for 16 years correct and that all started with knowing Mick Colvin or tell us how you, how you got into the, the certifying its beef business. So, so a little on my background, uh, started in Chicago and as a child, uh, on the weekends and summers spent time in my grandfather's butcher shop that was located in downtown Chicago. And we were an old style butcher shop. We had smoked meat. So it smelled good when you walked in, we still had wood blocks, uh, sawdust on the floor. So, we had that, you know, experience of the old-fashioned butcher shop and uh, uh, got used to washing a lot of trays and grinding a lot of hamburger and calling on customers. My grandfather wouldn't let me cut steaks. Uh, that w- that was for later on. Uh, well, but, I mean, uh, how old were you then? I was I was in there from the time I was probably seven years old till we moved to Ohio when probably I was 14. shouldn't be 14. cutting steaks if you're seven years old. Probably not. I got to work on a little bit of chicken, but uh, obviously a much uh, cheaper protein to experiment with. But we were at the time we were known for dry aged prime beef, and not only supplied some key restaurants, but a big part of the business was the retail side. You know, customers coming in and buying for the weekend. And when you say dry aged, I mean that's that's something that's almost having a resurgence now. Was it big back then? Yes, and certainly in Chicago it was big. And you know, it's it's kind of an artisan a form of aging beef, and and it does change the you know the flavor profile in comparison to most of the beef today that is wet aged. And uh, from there, ended up in Ohio as a teenager, and uh, my best friend in high school, high school, so happened to be Mick Colvin, was his father. And so Mick, who was the originator of this brand and our first president, uh, was really was a father figure to me and a mentor to me and helped me get into the cattle business. And so as uh, a 4-H and FFA, or Future Farmer of, of America, uh, member, I had some cattle livestock projects as well as some uh, feeder pigs to raise for pork. And, and from there, I was able to stay in this industry for my career so far. And in Chicago, was there, it sounds like you did a lot of hamburger. Was there kind of a, did you see a similar case that you see today or was it cut different? Were there different cuts or were there cuts that were maybe more popular back then? Uh, it, it would be it would be similar as far as what you're looking at it. What we would say any eighty twenty or or seventy thirty. So seventy percent uh, lean, thirty percent fat. It, it would be more towards that. I don't remember and I don't recall where we had more of the you know you might say the premium or gourmet grinds where we're adding brisket or short rib or these other cuts into uh, the grinds. Uh, we didn't have those back then. That's kind of a, a say in the last 15 years where we've developed, you know, more of the gourmet burger type of approach. And you said you smoked some things. Was there a, was there a pit in the back or? So downstairs in the basement, which I was scared to death to go down there. Uh, but we had, we'd smoke a lot of pork butts uh, and, and more of more pork items at that time, as well as we had some of our own uh, Frankfurter uh, uh, recipes and some of our own sausage recipes. So are you like pushing a rack into a smoking room or was it more of a, do you remember what the smoker was like? You bet. So old fashioned, built with brick, open flame, 
And so uh, we contained it with, you know, obviously some steel racking as well as some steel sides. But it, you might say a, a glorified uh, barbecue pit. Is so it was, it was almost like you had to put the doors back on every time you... Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And we had a pile of wood down there. And so we'd bring that from out in the countryside. And uh, uh, so big stack of wood downstairs. Do you remember what kind of wood it was? Yeah. We, we used a lot of, um, at the time, you know, because it was available in in illinois where we were at a lot of oak to be honest yep we like oak in texas too okay we we cook mostly post oak which is mm. a a, t- a type of white oak mm. uh and so what when you work there it sounds like you you liked being there you enjoyed yeah. being part of that was it just because you liked your family or was it because of the the meat or the customers or what what do you remember being kind of the joyous aspect of that uh, the fun part is you're the grandson. So, you know, when you look at, uh, so my brother is there now. And so he would be fourth generation in the same business, in the same building. It's the same shop? It there? is the same shop. What's it called? And it, it's Bednar's Meats. Oh, and, okay. and then, Easy enough. Uh, and then Choice Meats as well. But uh, the beauty of it, you know, uh, there's pictures of my great-grandfather with his first meat truck. You know, the old-fashioned type of, you know, Model T truck. You know, uh, with my grandfather as a child on the back with a container uh, accepting the food coupons during the rough times. And my great-grandfather had gotten hold of a, um, a load of hard salamis, of all things. So they never made it in the butcher shop. You know, they were on the truck around the corner. You know, the local community found out that, you know, he had the hard salamis, which uh, was an old European-style neighborhood. And so they didn't even unload them into the butcher shop. They just came around the corner and, and sold out off the truck. And and so the business has been in our family a long time. And to be part of that and the rich history of that. And honestly, uh, uh, the smell and atmosphere and, and the grandson, all the old customers come in and treat you great and tip you well. And, and so it was fun to be behind there with my grandfather. Uh, and it's cool that. You know, is that something uh, that your family is it just been a part of that business? Like, a, is the rest of your family kind of there, and you're the one in Ohio, or no? My so I have uh, two brothers, and uh, my middle brother stayed back in the business, and uh, my dad was in it for a while as well. Uh, but again, my brothers made his life in that business, and uh, um, then I have a brother that's in actually wildlife area of management. So. And then I was the one that decided, I uh, like the ones that are still moving through the pasture, and decided that, you know, it's pretty cool to be around animal agriculture. And, you know, to this day, there's nothing like the birth of a calf. And, and so you then moved to Ohio? Yeah, so, you know, how things happen, family divorce and so forth. And my mom moved us to West Salem, Ohio. She was a early American antique dealer. And uh, sight unseen, she bought this little 20-acre farm in West Salem, Ohio, and she described a Kentucky horse farm. And so I made the first trip with furniture with my stepfather and my stepbrother because we weren't so sure we wanted to move to Ohio. And we pulled up to the driveway, and I'm not kidding you, it was probably a quarter mile long. We weren't sure we'd get the truck down. It was so muddy. And now I mind you that my mother, it looked like green pastures, white picket fence, this beautiful farmhouse on a hill, gorgeous barn. And, and it was absolutely everything but that. It was a rundown old farm. And so I remember pulling up and my stepfather getting out of the U-Haul and just looking up at this old house on the hill. And there was a barn. And so my little brother and I ran down to the barn. And as we ran down and ran in the barn, we spooked the cows. And they ran out. Not only did they run out, but they knocked the door off the barn. And, you know, you're standing there as a 13-year-old, never been on a farm or seen cows or any type of livestock. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so I uh, decided, yes, I'm moving to Ohio and uh, really fell in love with uh, farming and agriculture in general. So you almost caused a stampede there. We did cause a little stampede, but thank goodness they stayed in their fence. Uh, it's a fun story, though. Did you did you all put a lot of sweat equity into the house? Were you fixing it up kind of as you lived there? Yes. And so my granddad, my mother's father, came out and saw it and was uh, dismayed, to say the least but was a woodworker, retired, and uh, very gifted. And so uh, he really spent a lot of time in the house and refinishing the old wood, you know, wide plank floors. And honestly, when when they were done with it, it had beautiful character to it. And, yeah, you just don't find homes with that type of uh, woodwork, you know, the size of the doors, uh, you know, the tall ceilings. And But I'll tell you, it was cold. 
you know, there was no heat upstairs, so we had frost on the windows in the morning in the winter. And about the time we moved out and went to college, all of us boys, uh, they had a little oil well on the farm, and we were always frustrated that they had the house heated really well after we left. But <laughs> uh, So was it just heavy blankets and hot water bags or what? No, just, just like anyone. You know, we had plenty of blankets, you know, and you didn't spend much time up in the bedroom other than under the you know, the blankets in the winter. But, uh, uh, but you know what? Home is what it is, right? And uh, uh, unbelievable. We had a, a family harvest type of uh, um, table, and, you know, I had stepbrothers and stepsisters, and so the house was always full of good type of noise and a little fighting amongst uh, siblings, but that was... Uh, I miss those days, but yeah, and but the you know the benefit too is that barn, and uh, so got involved in 4-H, and uh, FFA as I said, which is an organization that really teaches leadership amongst uh, farm kids, and is you know things not so not only is there you know like a board and so forth and a president and sentinel, and you learned about uh, parliamentary procedure, but there's all kinds of judging. Believe it or not, uh, there's scholarships to judge livestock. There's scholarships to do other types of meat judging in college. And so a uh, lot of time spent as a high school student, uh, you know, where some are playing a lot of sports. A lot of my time was spent judging livestock, uh, judging soil, uh, and as well as uh, uh, my passion and love was racing motorcycles. So. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. What kind of motorcycles? So motocross, which... Uh, my stepfather raced uh, professionally a couple of years for Harley Davidson flat tracking, and he was disgusted that I decided I want to be a motocross around two strokes from Japan. But uh, uh, really, that was my passion, and so uh, my whole childhood and some of you know even today I still ride motocross so at 58. So, what year was that when you first started? I would have started when I was uh, nine, and uh, so I graduated high school at 18 in 1979, and actually uh, uh, won amateur title as a 17 year old and so uh, that alone and you know maybe I hit my head a couple times and decided maybe I should stick with the the livestock uh, future then those helmets weren't very good back then either they weren't very good back then no and so you were really using two strokes I mean that's all there there weren't really like four stroke motocross or anything well you know I'm old enough where we started on you know little lawnmower motors you know mini bikes and then the first uh, mini cycles or small motorcycles were actually four strokes and then went to two-stroke, and now we've cir- circled around uh, to four-strokes. Those Harley trackers and those flat track races, are it's starting to become a thing again. I don't know if you've seen. It is. It's very popular again, and it's getting a pretty good following. And Yeah, I have a Harley at home, but it's more of a cruiser. Okay. But uh, I've, I've helped a few friends on some of those tracker projects, and mm-hmm. they're really fun to ride, you know, yeah. that taking that, that power and putting it into more of an aggressive stance than, you know, something where you're sitting back mm-hmm. and have your arms up high. That's so cool that you did that. Uh, do you have any do you have any crazy race memories or anything where you kind of fought your way to the head of the pack? Yeah, uh, you know, motocross is all about being first to the corner. You know, uh, it makes a big difference in a short race and and good and bad. I had really good reflexes and good technique to get hole shots. We call it first to the first corner. Everything's clear in front of you. The only problem is is when you go down you have another 40 bikes coming at you wide open. And there's been a couple times where, you know, slide out the front end as you're breaking to make the first corner and go down, and and it's not a good experience because uh, you've got a bunch of 15, 16, 17-year-olds coming, you know, at you. Uh, and so I've, that's a sport that it's not, it's not a matter of if you're going to get hurt, it's when you're going to get hurt and just how bad. And so, you know, some broken bones is just part of that sport if you're going to stay in it long enough. And, uh, you know, I'm fortunate that... Uh, I say fortunate, you know, I've broken uh, uh, my my neck as well as some um, vertebrae in my back and wow. as well as other bones, but those are the ones that scare you, you know, paralyzed. Uh, didn't have issue with that, but came out of sport pretty clean, and, and I still ride today, but obviously a little more mellow, <laughs> more you know, with the throttle. More the farm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. It's just one, one of the things I enjoy doing and uh, uh, takes me a little bit away from everything else I do. Yeah, and I mean, it's probably... I. I I like my motorcycle to get around, but it's also a nice way to clear your head is just right. warm her up and head out in a direction, not necessarily for any point except to ride and not have to think about anything else. Mm-hmm. So did you, I, I'm guessing that you continued to raise cattle after that first stampede? Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, you know, I, I really fell in love with, uh, beef cattle 
and livestock in general. I mean, and, and like I said earlier, uh, you know, Mother Nature is is brutal, but to have an effect on on when you're working with livestock and the response, you're responsible for every day of their life. It, it it can be a real high, you know, if you like that kind of thing. And there's some real lows too, you know, when something goes wrong. But uh, not only that, but you know, beef cattle producers are grass managers. And so to take time to learn about grass management and the different type of grasses and legumes that you can mix to increase production, but then also keep uh, control of soil erosion and these other things that core to everyone that's in this business. You know, it's more than just raising beef. It's also trying to be sustainable where, you know, our kids have opportunity to come back to that same farmer ranch experience, not only from a profitability standpoint, but, you know, the grass, grass is there, the erosion has been controlled clear waterways and and uh, it's it's the whole opportunity to work within the environment that's exciting uh, so time to go to college and mick colvin who uh, again was very important in my life and uh, said i needed to go to college a four-year degree and get a degree in animal science so went down to ohio state university and really didn't have any background you know i didn't i wasn't raised on a farmer ranch you know i had the little 20 acre experience but i always thought that was advantage because i was first generation got hooked on it as first generation yeah. and, and and i do think there can be a difference there you know i mean i'm in it i i don't know what kind of hooks up hormone wise whatever in your brain and, and in your body where this is what i want to be or what i want to do i was all in it wasn't because it was a family business per se or it's it's what i knew and and so uh, i spent four years at ohio state two of those years i lived at the beef barn so every state university will have a beef cattle uh, center they'll have a dairy center crop farm you know where not only research goes on but also where students get a chance to hone their skills and develop their you know s- skill level and so the beef barn at Ohio State actually had an apartment in it and so I was able to spend two years in that beef barn you know where I had responsibility to take care of cattle as well as get back to class and so that was a good jumping you know spot for me and then uh, probably one of the biggest things that Mick did for me was to open up a door for me to have an internship in Missouri on what was at the time the top Holt Hereford and Hereford herd in the world. And so to be then now on the genetic side of the business, the purebred beef cattle side, which I really loved because at that time showing cattle internationally was a big part of how we advertised. And so the competition of showing and being with the, the ranch that was winning all the time and selling cattle for literally tens of thousands of dollars uh, was really fun to come you know be in high or excuse me college and be part of that and get asked back for another internship and then I started my career there once I graduated from Ohio State University and so you you know working with the cattle figuring all this stuff out you talk about grass management is that more managing where the cattle goes on the grass or you actually actively seeding or watering or doing things like that all above and so uh so you know we've certainly gotten better over the last 50 years in in our our management skills and and how we manage uh uh, grass but it's a combination of taking advantage of the the the, uh the grass that that is already traditionally in this region per se but there's ways that we can improve the production not only from uh, for soil fertility but also by the wards or, or changing the mix of the grass so we can have, you know, some grass is taller grass, some is uh, shorter grass, adding legumes in that naturally fix uh, nitrogen, okay, into the soil and, and where that grass can pull that out are key to increasing. Are you feeding those to the cattle too or? Well, you know what, the best thing is then they're feeding themselves. Right. And so You're not like doing anything, you're just planting right. it and then when it grows they just right. eat it. And the other thing that I'd say is key, too, is also uh, what we call planting fence posts. And so it's, it's, you know, dividing the pastures into, you know, pasture paddocks, you might say, where we, we manage how long they're on that grass, and then we move them when it's an optimal time to move them off the grass where the grass still has enough blade left to regenerate quickly. And so, and then that disperses the manure as well and, and allows that to rest. And then we put them on some fresh as well, some fresh grass. There's also some different grass, you know, that's seasonally that we may utilize in the first part of the pasture or, or grazing season, as well as uh, grass that we would set aside or let grow up late in the fall. And then we would, you know, use that grass later on uh, once we get into the months where grass grass goes dormant. Well, so I have an interesting question just because I'm curious. 
the no matter how big the pasture I, I've driven around all you know I've ridden my motorcycle in West Texas where there's acre you know you know that uh, cattle needs more land in Texas per right. head because there's not as much grass and all that no matter what ranch I go to why are the cattle always sticking their head through the fence trying to eat like is it do they just like maybe you understand their behavior a little more but like why are they always trying to kind of get the stuff that's not behind the fence Good question, and it's kind of human nature too, isn't it? it? The grass is always greener on the other side, you know, and so, because I can't, you know, and, uh, but to that point too, as grass gets grazed down, you know, the the stuff that's along the fence line or on the other side may not be grazed, and so they're picking, they're looking for the best premium grass, and, and you bring up a good point too, you know, in this part of the country, Ohio or the Midwest, where we talk about carrying capacity, so, you know, how much ground does it take to run a cow-calf? you know, a pair. And so, you know, here with intensive grazing, you're certainly going to be under two acres per cow. And you hear of things such as like one acre per cow, and then you need to probably at that point have a uh, pasture in case things go wrong. You know, we don't, Mother Nature doesn't give us timely rains, but you say two acres in some of the parts of the world per cow-calf pair carrying capacity. You get out to Arizona, Utah, you know, some of the more arid parts, you're over 100 acres per cow-calf. Uh, carrying so it's like a order of magnitude difference yeah. but cows are inquisitive just like we are and you leave a gate open or you give them a little bit of room they're gonna go check it out i've i've stopped more than once to chase cows back into a yeah. an open fence or a broken fence but luckily they were all just along the road none of them were actually in the mm-hmm. road so i've yet to you know run into an actual cow in the road because um, i think they get to a certain extent that you know if they're going to get out they should probably don't want to go on the blacktop yeah 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 uh but you know we've chased a few cows in our life too and sometimes it's my fault that didn't latch a gate and uh you know my wife used to like to play a april fool's joke on me that cows are out in the front yard and go down and go outside and of course she just loved april fools but uh, a lot of times when they get out you know quite frankly it's our own fault left the gate open or but there's always that cow that uh, just like people and kids that uh uh, more quizzical than others. There always seems to be a leader in the group that gets them in trouble. So, uh, you know, that brings me to my next question. Do you see, you know, uh, at the conference we talked a lot about uh, that you can almost genetically affect, you know, the temperament of the cattle. Do you still see, like, do you kind of know, okay, this one's a troublemaker, or, or do you see kind of leaders being sown within the, the ranks? I think probably even people that aren't in agriculture have kind of heard of the boss cow. And so, you know, there's certainly that. But, uh, you know, to answer more on uh, docility or, or, you know, the temperament of cattle, uh, you you know, like, you know, cattle are herding animals, so they like to be together. There's always going to be the one that's a little more temperamental or a little more nervous, and that's the one that tends to try to, when it's grouped in a herd, tries to bury itself in the back. And it's the one with the head up, and they're very nervous. And so... Identify themselves very easy, and and most of us, you know, if, unless they're within kind of a parameter that we're used to, you know, we, we will sort out those ones that are maybe a little bit more flighty or or nervous, and those would be ones that uh, we would look to call from the herd, you might say. And there are ways, from a genetic standpoint, um, we we use the term EPDs, expect progeny differences, uh, where we can put a score on a cow and 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 offspring. So we could find a whole family, you know, and we score them for their docility. And, and so we can identify ways from a breeding perspective of, uh, of cattle that are more docile than others. And so if that's an issue, we can breed into our herds cattle that are more docility involved. But, you know, they tend to sort themselves out. And as far as the winter, I know that the, the cows can pretty much create their own heat. But is there a lack of grass? How do you How do you handle the cattle here when it, there's snow on the ground all the time so, so in the season or in parts of the world where you know we've got to bring feed to them up to six months of the year you know the, the best scenario is for that cow to go out and graze herself because you know one of the, the most expensive parts of agriculture period would be labor and so if she can go you know take a bite or feed herself you know we don't have the labor of not only making that feed which takes uh, tractors and energy and it takes time and, and land resources, and, and then a place to store that. Uh, so there's a real advantage when they, they can gleam off that grass themselves. But there's a point where 
we have to supplement them and provide feed through the winter. And, and typically that is the same grass that they ate. It's where we dried it out and baled it. It may be supplementing other feed resources uh, that, uh, you know, quite frankly, you and I aren't going to sit down and dine on. And so a cow being a ruminant has a real advantage in that they can use uh, roughage uh, to make a very high density protein product for us that, by the way, if it's certified eggs beef, tastes really good. I've been eating a lot of really good certified eggs beef <laughs> since I got here. So we do feed them. And, and, you know, part of that feeding them is think about a cow that uh, has a calf. So she's not only trying to replace her uh, reproductive efficiency because she just had a calf, but she's also milking. She needs energy to milk to raise that calf. So she's at a high demand for nutrients. So we use uh, nutritionists that develop a ration or, or the needs for that cow. Uh, once she weans that calf off, she's kind of on vacation for the next six months, generating another calf in her. And so that's when her she's at her lowest demand uh, from a nutrition standpoint. And many times that's when we'll take advantage of like uh, crop residues and other lower quality feed. And then as she gets closer to that nine-month generation, her needs start increasing. And so we increase her nutritional needs. And and so that's a, that's a science behind it. And then the cowboying or the stockman side of that is is reading her body condition, knowing when those times are when you know her needs go up and meeting those. So are you talking about, are you just rolling out a big piece of hay? When you say feed them, is that kind of grass that you've saved from the warmer times of the year? Or is that, I mean, obviously you're not, yeah, oats and things are too expensive to kind of feed them for six months on. Depending though, there's times where supplementing, you know, corn, or, or other, you know, we usually will supplement a little protein to them where that can be very cost effective. But yeah, hay would be the, the main item that we'd use in the beef cattle industry to get them through those cold months. And so typically what you'll see, you know, the round bales you might see in the field, uh, that's a good way of feeding because it's a good way for us to move a lot of feed in bulk and they're weight. They're huge. Yes, they're big. So, you know, a lot of round bales would be that 900 to 1,200, 1,400 pounds, depending on the size of your baler. But then uh, we put those in what we call a round bale feeder, and then she feeds herself when she's hungry. So you kind of, it's just, you put it right in the middle of it, and they kind of stick their heads in and pick at it? Correct, correct. Because I've seen some people, they unroll the whole thing, but I guess that's a less efficient way to do it. Well, I won't say that, because, you know, honestly, we would unroll a lot of our hay uh, because we could spread out where they could all eat. And, uh, you know, then I could also come closer to meeting let's say if we have 100 cows in a group, you know, I, I, I can, we'll test the feed so we know what its nutritional value is. We know what that cow needs on that day. And so we can kind of bring enough feed out for that day. And so we know we're taking care of that cow's needs every day, but we don't have so much there that they get bored and they go pull some out and they lay on it. And so we probably have a little less waste when we feed them on a daily basis what they need. The other nice thing of that too is we're spreading out what comes out the back end. Instead of piling it all in one area where we've got to haul it out in the spring and then spread it back on the pastures or fields, uh, which it's, it's amazing nutritional value in, in that, uh, she's doing it herself. And so the other thing that happens, too, when you spread that out, uh, they tend to lay close to where the feed is. And so where you get more manure and so forth, they'll, they'll just have a dirty hair coat. And so when we feed them all across the pasture, they're just cleaner. and, and uh, So you're actually moving that feeder around correct, correct. That's a, it, some of it depends on where this big thing is. it's like a tractor or something you do that with yes yeah 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 big it's, boy toys yep big yeah fun toys yep uh well so i've just uh, there's so many questions i have because raising cattle is such a complicated business it's such a you know you you talk about just the way you feed them can affect the pasture uh are there other challenges that the average person might not know about to having, you know, four seasons or things like that? You know, I, you know, late, raising livestock or raising beef cattle isn't for everybody. You know, if you, you know, if, if you're, if your life is all about uh, how much money you can make, how quick you can make it, uh, it's certainly not the industry to be in. It's one of those, in, you know, it's a culture, you know, it, it's, it's, it's being able to be, you know, on the land, liking that cold wind in your face, you know, maybe a little snow or freezing rain, you still got to go out and take care of those cattle or whatever livestock you have, uh, you know, keep fresh water in front of them, uh, all those things. And, uh, 
you know, it just gets to be part of some people. And there is some real benefits that are pretty hard to measure from a, what's in your pocketbook per se is, you know, there's times when I was mowing hay and my wife would come out with the truck with the two little boys and we'd shut down and we could have a picnic lunch, not on a weekend or after work, in between work. And, and so it's a family type of uh, culture or living, you know, because you got to work together. And, and most of us in that part of, of that of our industry, if you're in livestock production, you can't really afford a lot outside uh, labor. And so the labor force ends up being the family. And so you work and play together, and that can be pretty special. Uh, as far as, you know, some of the challenges anyone has in agriculture is it's very much capital intensive. Land is very expensive. Uh, the tractors and the equipment that are utilized are very expensive. And so there's a lot of capital overhead for the return on the investment, you might say. And and I was reading earlier today in 2019, one article said the average return for a feeder calf to harvest age was 70, $77 per head. And so, you know, it takes, you got to raise a lot of them to make a living at it. And so when you look at our beef cattle industry today in the United States or in North America, including Canada, uh, there's usually supplemental income. One of the spouses works off the farm for you know, not only the health benefits, but for income, period. Uh, and so, again, the capital outlay for the return on the investment isn't necessarily there. That's $77, you know, to give you an idea if that's the average return uh, over this last year on raising feeder calf to to ready to be harvested for meat, uh, our brand can give up to $50 per head in premiums if those animals can hit all 10 of the carcass specifications. That's on top of the $77. Yeah. Yes. And, I mean, that's a that's almost double. Yes. And so, you know, any time that, you know, you can really meet what that consumer's looking for. And, and, and maybe to back up, if you go back not too many years, honestly, uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, much of agriculture is driven by commodity items. And so, you know, by definition, if you're raising corn or commodity beef, okay, uh, you're raising that at cost. And so how do you add value when you're a commodity producer? Well, you find ways to, to do it cheaper than the average person. You know, the other way you do it is start looking, you know, maybe backwards instead of raising it, whether that's corn, soybeans, pork, chicken, or beef, and then taking it to the market. You know, a way to look that differently is, okay, ask the consumer, what do you want, what do you want to buy? You know, what's important to you? And then backing up and, and producing that product, which honestly is more expensive to produce, but has a higher net return and value not only to you as a cattleman, potentially, in premiums, but also meets in that consumer's expectation on the plate. And so, you know, we know for a fact that people will pay more for that, you know, that taste and, and that flavor experience than they will for something average. And that's been our focus, and that's been allowed those tied to the Angus breed to benefit in those premiums that we mentioned. Well, and to, to bring it back to Certified Angus Beef, this whole brand started with one bad steak. It did. Harold Etling, which uh, was a uh, breeder of Angus cattle on the side. Okay, it was a hobby. Uh, some have boats, some have snowmobiles or motorcycles like you and I. Some raise cattle. And so we had a little herd of cattle local to Wayne County area. And he was also entrepreneur and uh, was in Chicago on business and went to a restaurant, steakhouse, saw Angus on the menu, got excited because he raises Angus at home, ordered that steak, and you know what? It was tough. It didn't have the taste, the flavor that he was used to eating from his freezer beef, okay, off his own farm. And he wrote a letter to the American Angus Association, our parent company, outlining what he thought we needed to do as a breed to protect not only the, the Angus breed, to bring value back to the Angus breed in that we would develop a brand that was uh, not only had carcass specifications, okay, that would make not just average Angus beef, but the best Angus beef, but then it was also important to have a follow-through system, and I think this is uh, pretty profound that he thought ahead of this. It wasn't good enough just to sell high-quality beef. We're going to follow that high-quality Angus beef all the way to the end user, the restaurant and retailer, and so that if they use our marks, such as certifying as beef, we can guarantee those that are shopping at that grocery store or sitting at that restaurant table, that's indeed what they're getting served. And how did uh, Mick Colvin, you know, did, 
did he know the Angus Association? Did he know uh, Mr. Etling? How did he kind of come into everything? So at the time, uh, Mick Colvin was local to Wayne County, West Salem, Ohio, and he worked for the American Angus Association as a regional uh, regional representative of the breed. And so what he would do is one of his things was to work with purebred Angus breeders, those that are raising the genetics, okay? Uh, he would work with them on not only merchandising, advertising, selling uh, for the East Coast. And and so he so happened to be in West Salem, Ohio. Harold Etling was in the same area. And so really that was the spark and the association then from a committee standpoint of some very core key performance-minded breeders as well as Harold Etling, and, and they formed a committee. And they started looking at the opportunity to start this brand. And so the letter that was written to the association outlined, we need to do something to protect the value of Angus cattle, to make them more valuable, but also to protect the consumer that they can be assured that that steaks can be high quality. That letter was written in 1975, and officially our brand became uh, uh, became a brand, you might say, or certainly a company or a committee in 1979. Wow. So quick work. Yeah, quick work. And all in his roll-top desk, as I said, in the hallway of his farmhouse is where, as the only employee of Certified Angus Beef, Mick Colvin was kind of, I hope he won't be frustrated with me saying this, but he was stubborn enough to will it because there were no brands before us. And so, you know, you know, this whole concept was novel and new, but Mick believed in this program and, and this uh, vision for what this could be. And I don't think any of us, including myself, had any idea of the influence it would have on our industry. And, you know, you mentioned him as a mentor, uh, and was that because your his son was your best friend growing up? How did you, how did you first get introduced to him? Well, through through his son, and uh, I think he was always a little frustrated with me because they raised Angus cattle, and uh, I decided that I thought there was nothing cooler than the horns on a Hereford animal, and I learned that horns aren't aren't all that much fun to deal with, you know, in the real life, and. Uh, but uh, he always offered to give me a Hereford heifer, or excuse me, an Angus heifer, which is a young female, you know, where you could start a herd. She'd be turned into a cow. And I always told him, no, I'm going to have Herefords. And uh, probably one of the biggest mistakes I made was not just listening to him and, and starting with Angus. But, but then again, Herefords were a very important part of, you know, feeding our family and raising our kids. Uh, out of, once I uh, went in business for myself, we had a registered polled Hereford herd in Michigan. I had a partner, Lowell Burst and Linda Burst, that are now family. And uh, we were fortunate to have some national champions do very well with Hereford cattle and sold them in over 24 countries. But then with some other key friends and you might say mentors from Michigan State and a couple of those being uh, Dr. Dr. Harlan Ritchie and Dr. Uh, Maynard Hoberg and, and then certainly another key partner of mine or our mentor, uh, Dr. David Hawkins, we developed a small Angus herd. And one of the things that was eye-opening is just how powerful that Angus cow is. Uh, she's the best cow, in my opinion, in North America for what a cow need, beef cow needs to do. And that first th thing that she needs to do is breed back. Uh, but she's got to raise a very thrifty calf. Uh, that calf is going to grow fast. She's, again, very efficient. And then the best part of that is the Angus breed, once they go into the feedlot or become... Uh, designated to go into the food channel, you might say, they really are the best breed to not only have high performance health through their life, but also to provide us with that end product, which is rich in marbling. So can you give us a, a brief, you know, layman's overview of a, a Hertford versus a, a mm -hmm. Angus? So if you look back uh, at the breeds that were brought into the United States, you know, we talk about the British breeds. And so that would be the Hereford breed. That would be the shorthorn breed and the Angus breed. And so those would be, you know, think of uh, Scotland, Ireland, and, you know, that part of the world where many those breeds really were uh, formed or developed. And then what happened in the 80s, uh, we went from, you know, thinking that was the way to go to we have to become more efficient. We've got to raise more red meat because we decided then that, you know, fat was our enemy, which we know today is not true. And so efficiencies, more lean red meats. And so what we did then is the breeds, what we call continental breeds. So the breeds from Europe, uh, such as Semitol, Charlet, 
uh, Kianea, Maine Anjou, you know, some of these breeds that were very, very heavily muscled, very little fat were in, introduced in the U.S. and became very popular. The problem with them is uh, those are breeds that have a lot of red meat yield, but they don't taste good. They're not as tender. And, 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 and I say taste good. They're not consistently going to be, a, you know, a flavorful eating experience. And so, and so what's evolved is we've gone back to truly, you know, about what is what is important in beef. What what makes beef different than pork or chicken or other protein? It's the taste that you choose beef, which is a more expensive protein. That's that's why we choose beef. And so we went back to focusing on what brought people to the table to eat beef uh, to start with, and that's flavor. And so our brand focuses on flavor. And I'm glad you do. <laughs> Uh, so tell me more about, you know, you, you call Mick Colvin a mentor. Uh, did he, you know, it sounds like you came to him with a lot of knowledge to begin with. Was there a, uh, I guess, was there a specific thing? Did he help you with school? Did he, what did he do to advance your, uh, beef life? He, uh. He, he did a lot, and you know what? He, he mentored a lot of people, you know, in this industry. Uh, certainly I was one of them, and yeah, I admire people that not only have done very well for themselves, but those that take time to give back to all of us, uh, either directly like he did me or indirectly by what he's done with by building this brand. And to this day, he's at our annual conference, and he gets a standing recognition, you know, ovation. Uh, uh, and, and that's not from cattle breeders alone. That's people that are retailers. That's people that are chefs, uh, restaurant tours, food service distributors. You know, they, they understand the influence of his vision for this industry was, you know, one of the coolest things he did. You know, I go back to my internship is I can remember sitting on the floor in his living room. And he said, I need to write a letter to this owner and this manager of this big Hereford ranch. Not a type it out, but a personal letter of why he needs to hire me you know, for my internship, and no doubt that ranch gets many re requests for internship. And Mick, you know, looking over my shoulder as I'm sitting on the, his living room floor and writing that letter and sending it off, and I don't doubt he probably had a phone call to that ranch too, but that probably was the biggest uh, spark, you might say, to getting me into production agriculture. And, uh, uh, you know, as I've made clear, you know, I sort of have a passion for that, and Someday, probably in retirement, I'll have a few cows uh, to uh, take care of. But then it also allowed me to, you know, to continue to ask questions and grow and, and then have opportunity 16 years ago to represent not only myself in the industry, but now come and represent all producers, you know, through this brand and try to, you know, honestly, you know, our mission is to add value to purebred seed stock registered Angus cattle. And so one thing that's very critical to that is the bull is very powerful. A cow has one calf per year. Bull could have 2550. In artificial insemination, that bull could have 20,000 plus offspring. And so the bull is very powerful in changing genetics. And so that Angus, the value of Angus bulls over the last 30 years certainly has increased. And some of that value uh, certainly goes back to the uh, this brand certified Angus beef. And really our mission to try to, if I can't ranch myself, which is hard to do, if I can help another ranch family that's tied to Angus cattle stay in that ranch and their kids come back, I get purpose out of that. And, I mean, as much as it's a family business, it's also a community. So I'm sure you you knew your neighbors. I'm sure you've had to, you know, have help fixing a tractor or borrow some equipment. And I'm sure you've lent some things to neighbors as well. Do you... Is that also, I mean, family's very important, but there must be a, a, an awesome community that you got to grow up in as well. Yeah, it's, it's bigger than that, as you said. And, you know, it's not just the tractors and that, it's your personal labor, you know. And so, you know, you share labor. Uh, you know, I've been out of production agriculture now for about 20 years, you know, working for the brand for 16 of those. But, uh, yeah, it is a commu community effort, and uh, uh, you're pretty close to your neighbors. And, uh you may be renting land from there or utilizing some of, you know, their uh, feed that they produce. And and the other cool things that happen in agriculture and that I think is very key when you talk about the youth and trying to develop, you know, young leadership, not only that come back to the farms and ranches, but represent all of us in other walks of life, is uh, 
the livestock projects. And part of that projects is opportunity at each county you know, across America has a county fair. And it goes back century, you know, or more, where, you know, you brought in your best livestock for a week and you showed them off in the county. And so youth activities around, as I mentioned earlier, opportunity to judge, evaluate livestock, evaluate wool, evaluate soil, these other things that teach you uh, not only about that, but teach you as a person how to uh, evaluate information, make a decision, and have to defend it, which we all have to do in life, whether we're in agriculture or not. And so uh, showing cattle, judging cattle, uh, there's a American Angus uh, Association has a Junior Angus Association where youth up to 21 are involved in that, not only in leadership, but they are raising cattle, and then they're displaying them once a year at the Junior National, which is literally hundreds of Angus cattle that are being uh, washed and cared for by our kids. And so there's many facets of this that help to build, you know, what we hope is a future for all of us in America. So do you feel like if I put 10 Angus in front of you, you could probably tell me which one's the the best just by, I mean, you must have a great eye for Angus cattle. Well, you know, on the younger cattle, that's easier to say, you know, that I could do that. Once they're cows, you know, honestly, we look at other things. And it's not, uh, and we do that in our selection process, which is critical to make an improvement. It's not only looking at the individual, but it's the family tree, the pedigree that we look at. It's the information of that pedigree. Uh, Again, I mentioned the EPDs. At one time, we will select for over 20 different traits at one time when we make a breeding decision. And so there's a lot of unknown under that hide that we can't see that there's other ways using other information, such as even DNA, you know, where we can make a better decision going on or down the road where we make faster change, you know, more improvement in our cow herds. Uh, but, yeah, evaluation is one of those important things, and, and it'll hopefully always be important that the animal is sound, you know, foot and leg and, and uh, also has the breed character and the muscle and qualities and the other things that we look for when we evaluate live cattle. And and you're just changing positions here. You've spent the last 15 years traveling the world, representing certified Angus beef, uh, and you know that experience. Uh, you know we probably don't have time to go completely into it. But one of the questions I ask anyone who's on the show is, you know, what's your message to the people that are inspired by you, the people that are that care about cattle, that care about their herd, that that want to get into the business from from traveling all over the world and representing a strong brand, you know, what What do you think, uh, why is Certified Angus, like, how are, how can people, you know, do a good job with their cattle? How can they represent their brand properly? How do you, you know, traveling, you, you said you went to Asia, you said you went all over the world, you know, what did you do in those places? Were you showing them the superiority of the meat? Or what are you doing to, to, to raise the brand when you go on those trips? So, you know, when we represent, you know, so our brand itself uh, is in 50 countries, okay, plus the United States, so 51 countries. We're in 51 countries where the brand, where a consumer could find our brand, okay, and that's in every continent. And, and, and imagine this, in many of these countries today, and this is one of the beauties of, of America, but in many of these countries, they're not self-sufficient in feeding their own population. They have to depend on other countries to, to literally feed their masses of people. And so when, when you're not supplying your own pr- food, you're probably more curious, and, and not probably, you are more curious of what's going on. And so America, United States, is generally considered ver- very trustworthy of not only supplying a wholesome product that's very high quality, but we can also... V- and this is probably just as important, we can supply that every day. You know, when you can't feed your masses, you have to have trust that somebody's going to deliver on that protein need and the energy needs of, of, of your country. And so not only are we able to do that and do that very economically compared to other countries, but we also focus on high-quality beef. And, and specific to, you know, what I do is – there's no one that can raise high-quality beef like we can in the United States and do it economically and deliver as, as much beef and supply as what we do from a global perspective. And so th- you know, language is never the barrier. It's access because of po- political stances and so forth. Uh, there's good people everywhere. And, you know, 
it's the same thing you do at home. There's nothing like what can happen around a table with food. And so the common denominator is still what happens at that table, whether that's in our homes or whether that's going out and dining. And so, you know, again, uh, the experience of having beef and eating certified Angus beef, you know, around the world with customers or friends, uh, it's very gratifying for me. And, and now I've been able to step back from that and be uh, traveling a little closer to my zip code, and uh, but still representing this brand, um, uh, not only on some international projects, but also a little closer to home working with some of our uh, licensed partners and so forth in the United States. But uh, the common denominator is not only a wholesome product that we can supply, but we can do that in a cost-effective, economical way where many across the world can afford to dine on certified Angus beef. And I come from Texas, so my, my last question is, if you, you know, for the students, the people who are ambitious, the people who fell in love with it, uh, do you have a message to them for, you know, that, that they if they want to get, uh, you know, they're looking at a Colvin scholarship, they're looking at mm-hmm. the brand, they're looking at, you know, if they're going to get into the beef industry, they want to be with the best. Uh, what's your tips to, to aspiring uh, Jeff Badners? Uh, yeah, I've told my kids the same thing, and I've changed my tune a little bit because it's a combination of a couple things. Go after your passion. Uh, but that passion kind of runs out after a while. Find something that's not only your passion but gives you purpose. So on those tough days, it gets you out of bed running. And ask a lot of questions. Uh, align yourself with the best. And what I mean by that, find individuals that you can trust that have been successful in your career path and go call on them. Uh, they did the same thing you're asking to do right now as a student is they, they had someone like a Mick Colvin that was important to them. And so reach out to those folks or reach out to folks like myself that can get you aligned with the right people. Uh, generally, most of us want to you know, if you're in our industry or you want to be in our industry, we're all about trying to help you find your path to that and follow that and let it go where it goes. I never thought I'd be starting in Chicago working with my grandfather and then have a chance to go raise beef cattle or run around the country representing this brand or globe. Chase your dreams, find someone who's doing it and learn from them. Exactly. Well, thank you, Jeff. I know you have to go. I appreciate it. It's nice meeting you and thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for yours. Hey, they come in and meet man. Y'all don't see me eat man. Hit on the meat man. Y'all don't see me eat man. I got jaws like a bear trap, a teeth like a razor. I made tack tongue with a sensitive taster. I was born out in Texas called the land of beef. Never catch a muscle greener, showing the hell of like a meat on the meat man. Y'all don't see me eat man.